Coming up in this podcast, COVID concerns, office sales, leasing deals, hydrogen, development approvals, Jackson and Nicola Forrest. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome again, Mark Beyer. Um, firstly, Mark, the state government has tightened restrictions for travel between WA and New South Wales. Now, I didn't know we could make it harder, so that's interesting. Let's, uh, let's look at what exactly they've done and obviously the implications. Well, look, you're right. It raises this bigger issue about how we live with COVID and what level of rules and restrictions are appropriate. Um, and like you, uh, I thought we already had pretty tough restrictions in place. And that's certainly the feedback I've been getting from a lot of people in the business community. Uh, some people who've been calling me who are stuck in Sydney, who've been wanting to come back, yeah. who've made multiple applications to come back, who've had COVID tests and, and they're not positive, and they're doing everything they can to get back into Perth. And they'll quarantine here, presumably. That's right. Um, and I can't get approvals. I can't get the G2G pass. So Friday morning, uh, Mark McGowan came out and sort of raised the bar. So there's this new uh, category that will apply to New South Wales because of the number of cases there. So you, know, you need a negative test, you need proof of vaccination, uh, you need to use the G2G app, um, get approvals, go through the quarantine process. Uh, he said that there were 100 approved travellers entering WA from New South Wales in the past 48 hours. Uh, now, we don't know how many people have applied. Certainly, uh, I'm hearing there are many people who have applied that can't get in. <laughs> yeah. um, and then they've also laid on what they now will call an extreme risk category. So if the number of cases in New South Wales goes above 500 per day, it'll get even tougher. Mm. Um, look, everybody commends the WA government for their success in keeping COVID out of the WA community. And yeah, one example, uh, Chris Ellison at Mineral Resources, um, he hosted a briefing during the week for their results announcement. He said, look, it's great being in WA, their minds are operating, things are good, but as he said, we need to find a way to bring people into Western Australia. Mm. You know, um, mining, agriculture, health, all sorts of industries. Uh, we hosted a breakfast during the week with Nicola Forrest, and we'll talk about that in more length later on. Uh, she raised the same concern. You know, their business, they've got a restaurant uh, here in Perth, they're trying to bring a chef into the country. They can't get that person into the country. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think some more work needs to be done. You know, we've discussed many times the need for purpose-built quarantine facilities. Um, this talk about, well, Jandicott's been chosen as the preferred site to develop a facility of that kind here in WA. Uh, but, yeah, gee, but that's going to take months. Yeah. You know. Um, so look, it's a, it's a continuing concern and to lay it on top of that, you know, we had a new report out during the week from Pit Crew Consulting quantifying the extent of labour shortages in Western Australia. Um, their work focuses just on the big mining and infrastructure projects. They're saying there's already a shortage of about 25,000 workers for those big projects. Yeah, gosh. They're saying it's going to get worse 
and will peak early 2023. Yeah. Um, and there'll be some more projects coming through. Yeah, okay, right. But I guess yeah, there's that peak, but to me the interesting takeaway is that over the four to five year sort of period that, that they're looking at it, there's just constant shortages and significant ones as well. Yeah. It's not yeah. a short-term spike. No, okay, because, no. yeah, 2023, it's a fair way out and anything could change with COVID. We understand, you know, vaccination rates obviously will will increase and there'll be a lot more flexibility around that, but still, it's a long way. And and if you're not getting people in the state now, you know, that, that gap, the gap gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? Mm. And look, some interesting comments from Peter Dybal from Pit Crew. He says the most significant influence is actually competition from the big infrastructure projects on the East Coast. Right. Uh, so there's you know, plenty of work over there, um, subject to COVID restrictions. Yeah. But yeah, that's keeping people away from Western Australia. He says you know, the pandemic has compounded the situation and quote turned it from difficult to diabolical. Yeah. That is a, <laughs> gives you a flavour of you know what what he's hearing. Um, also, he's commented on the way in which businesses locally are responding. You know, people are putting in place training programs, upskilling programs, and so on. But the other thing that's more and more evidence coming through is the bonuses that everybody's having to pay to either retain or attract their staff. Yeah, right. So the official wage rates aren't going up very much, only 1% to 2%. But that's because they don't factor in all the one-off bonuses that everybody's throwing around at the moment to try and cope. Yeah. So that's yeah, and that and you know that's a that's a trend that will only get worse, I presume. Or worse is not the right word, but you know, will only get exacerbated. Yeah. And look, as an aside, one of the points that Peter talked about, I remember ten years ago in the last mining construction boom, there were some really interesting anecdotes about the fact that you know, obviously we had labour shortages then, and one area where it bit really hard is the supervisors where you had the young university graduate out there trying to lead a, a work crew yep. and they just didn't have the skills or experience to do the job properly and it led to huge issues with productivity and efficiency. And Peter reminded people, this is important. You can't just focus on upskilling your tradies. You've got to have good supervisors in there to ensure the productivity outcomes. Yes. And that often gets overlooked, I think, in this discussion. So there's all sorts of dimensions here. Um, and uh, look, when you've got things pretty much out of control, as they are in New South Wales, it does put WA in a difficult position. Yep. Um, but um, putting in place some guidelines and developing that purpose-built quarantine facility, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, it just shows you how, much, how reliant we are on the mobility of the workforce um, to get things done, you know. All right, Mark, now look, uh, you know, there's, we've got quite a lot of property news uh, in this bulletin. So, um, firstly, the stats from office sales in Perth show there's some pretty positive news in, in the terms of trending. Yeah, Katie McDonald had an update during the week. Uh, a report from CBRE said that so far this year, there's been about $950 million worth of Perth office assets that have changed hands. Yeah. Uh, the, the peak numbers, or the record numbers, were about $1.2 billion. That was in uh, 2019. For the like-for-like like period. Yeah. 
So look, and whereas last year was a very quiet one for the office market, very few transactions. Um, you know, the big one that we reported um, a few weeks ago was Dexas. They bought a 49% stake in Capital Square, which yep. is the new Woodside building. Uh, uh, Prime West has also done a deal around 140 St George's Terrace. And then the other news that came out just this week, uh, Mervac announced that they're putting Allendale Square on the market. Mm. So that's what, a 31-storey tower valued at about $230 million. Home to uh, quite a few lawyers around town, um, including WA Bar Chambers and Minter Ellison. Uh, so they'll add to, uh, you know, assuming that they manage to do a deal in the next little while, that'll add to the volume of transactions. And the commentary around this is interesting. Uh, average yields in the Perth office market, nearly 6.3%, well above what you get in Sydney and Melbourne. Now, there's always a differential there. You always get a higher yield in Perth, but it's now significantly higher mm. than traditionally is the case. So, you know, the analysts look at that and think there's um, some good reasons, on top of the fact that you know, the WA economy is travelling pretty nicely uh, for increased investor demand. Yeah, and look, we've talked about it before, Mark, that the fact that, um, you know, a year ago there was this concern that, you know, the office market was dead, no one will ever go back to the office. Uh, and yet here, I mean, partly because we had such a short lockdown and, you know, uh, when, when, a year ago, and partly because of the way the economy's going, uh, we're seeing all this movement and, uh, and interest, which is great. And Mark, obviously, uh, this follows on from the sales story, but office leasing deals, they've also been tracking well. Uh, um, since the start of last year, we've had 45 leasing deals in the Perth office market. And interesting just to run through some of the organisations that are doing these deals and where the movements are coming from. Uh, the most recent one was Fortescue Metals Group. Uh, they've leased about 3,000 square metres down there at East Perth, just opposite their head office in the Hyatt Centre. This is an example of increased demand off the back of projects. Yeah. Uh, Fortescue's uh, busily working away up in the Pilbara um, in particular on their Iron Bridge project and you need a big project team down in Perth uh, to support all the workers on the ground up there. Um, once again, I guess uh, similar to the last boom uh, where we saw a similar trend here. Yeah, um, and, and Mark just, I mean I was in uh, FMG the other day, I mean it's a huge space, they've got a huge open, for, open plan, floor plan and yet I mean, I'm sure, and I haven't asked them, but I'm sure they'd hate this because they're again now having, like was happening in the boom, the big companies are having to break up their teams into, you know, different different places. Project team or not, I don't think they really, it's not ideal. Yeah, look, um, you're right if, um, if they're constrained in that way. Um, but look, they managed to find spots down there at Bennett Street, just over the road. Yeah. So um, they'll make that work. Uh, look, some of the other ones that have happened recently, Herbert Smith Freehills, uh, Perth's largest law firm, moving into Elizabeth Quay, uh, into the new Chevron building. So that's still a way off completion, yep. uh, but they'll be moving out of uh, QV1. Where Chevron are moving out of as well. Okay. Uh, Woodside, they've actually taken extra space in the... So they're up in the Capitol Square. Yeah. Um, 
they've, they've pretty much occupied the, the main building up there. There's a second tower that's just been completed. Woodside has taken some space in that. Uh, the other one, BDO, uh, big accounting firm. They've been in Subiaco for a number of years. So they've been lured back into the city. Yeah. They'll be taking that second tower at Capitol Square. And and that's, you know, it looks like it's getting close to completion. It's not, not it's in the not too distant future. I think it'll be later this year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Goldfields, they're another big mining house that's uh, moving into the city. Um, so, you know, when the, the good deals have been offered. Um, another one in the tech sector, um, Family Zone. Uh, they have cyber uh, software. Mm. Um, basically, it's about having filters on uh, on your devices to control you know, who gets to see what, yep. and particularly your children. Uh, really interesting story. So, you know, off, and as an aside here, uh, they've expanded internationally. You know, it's a really strong growth area that they're tapping into. Mm. And just last week announced a big acquisition in the UK, uh, taking over one of their major competitors. So what we're seeing here is the emergence of what could be a Perth-based company uh, becoming an international leader yeah, right. um, in that space. Oh, that's great. Um, so they've also done, recently done a, a new leasing deal in the city. So growth coming from quite a range of sectors there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fascinating. And, uh, and they're not the only tech firm you know, to take up a decent amount of space in the city. There's been a few, and I think that's a bit of a hidden a hidden uh, bonus of this change, the space avail the availability of space has meant that some firms that might have previously been out in suburbia are now coming into the city for those kind of things. Um, now Mark, something quite different, BP have released a study on a hydrogen project in Geraldton. Um, now Matt McKenzie's had a pretty good look into this subject on the top of that. Yeah, look, in the latest edition of our magazine, uh, just already out on the streets, uh, Matt's done a really long, detailed analysis about the growth prospects for hydrogen. You know, it's a term that everybody's talking about now, uh, from industry and government in particular. Um, the state government's been particularly bullish about the growth prospects there. Uh, and he, I guess he's raised some really valid questions about just how much growth we can expect there and the risks that are involved. You know, a lot of people talk about first mover advantage. Hmm. You know, let's dive into here, let's seize the opportunity. And yet Matt's looked at, you know, analysed a whole range of industries and just shown that the first mover Not can actually be the, the one that uh, suffers the most. Yeah, and when the old term there, Mark, pioneers are the ones who, who have arrows in their, in their backs. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Um, or you know, do you want to be the fast follower yeah. rather than the first mover who uh, wears all the pain? So look, one of the fundamentals here is that WA, um, and around WA there's lots of gas. Yes. Uh, and people see long term a limited future for gas, you know, as the world moves towards cleaner fuels. Um, and hence this opportunity to convert the gas into hydrogen. Um, that's what we call blue hydrogen. There's an opportunity there. Their even bigger opportunity is around green hydrogen. Uh, we use renewables, you know, solar farms or wind farms or hydropower to produce green hydrogen. Yeah. The issue there is that there are numerous places around the world that have similar capacity. 
to produce green hydrogen. Yep. Uh, WA doesn't have a particular advantage there. So you can imagine all sorts of uh, uh, countries pursuing this. You know, and a little example, the fact that Woodside, Perth Company, and Fortescue Metals Group that both have studies underway in Tasmania mm. to use hydropower there yeah, yeah. for hydrogen projects. Uh, the Midwest area around Geraldton has been targeted as a big opportunity, particularly because of um, its capacity to produce um, you know, solar and wind power. Uh, BP is one of many organisations that's been analysing this and they put out a study during the week which confirmed that their plans to, to convert hydrogen into ammonia um, as an export commodity was technically feasible. But once again, quite a lot of challenges. Mm. Uh, one, upgrades to port infrastructure would be needed. So that's either at the existing port at Geraldton or a new facility at Okaji. Yeah. Uh, two, upgrading the power infrastructure, in particular the transmission network. Um, that would also need to be done. And BP acknowledged, when you try to look at the economics of this, well, it's, it's there aren't any hard numbers out there. You know? yeah. What's the demand going to be for green ammonia in 10 years' time? And yeah. what's the price you're going to get? A lot of assumptions, isn't there? And, uh, you know, and I guess, I mean, going back to that discussion about West Australia's place, I think there are, I mean, obviously on the positive side, we do have a lot of sun and a lot of wind, so you know, from a, if you're going to produce hydrogen from renewable energy, uh, sorry, for, yeah, from renewable energy, then then you know we've got some advantages there, and we've got obviously, well, you know, lots of countries have coastline and water, but we've got lots of water, and we've also got potentially, you know, the 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 kind of uh, space you need to to do the treating and processing, um, and the other side, Mark, is we've got the logistics and processing hubs already for LNG, which would be similar to hydrogen. So there are some reasons why there's some advantages here, but you're right, it's not the same as natural gas, which is, you know, something that we just happen to have and lots of places don't. Um, and, and a quick reminder, of yeah. course, there's, there were plans for the big uh, Asian renewable energy hub up on the coast between Port Hedland and Broome. Yep. Um, a mammoth project and you know we all thought lots of space up there and lots of coastline and lots of water um, and it got knocked back on environmental grounds yes uh, because of the you know the issues around that particular part of the coast yeah so you might look at the map and think it's easy to get to the detail so look clearly I guess to sum up mm. you know an opportunity definitely worth pursuing yeah but let's just sort of keep some perspective on this and acknowledge the challenges. Yeah, and it reminds me during the week, you know, Twiggy Forest and Tatarang have been talking about doing uh, aquaculture down in down in the southwest and the fishermen of Albany and, you know, there's, you know, there's, as, as Andrew Forrest says, there's 300 kilometres or more of coast and yet, you know, uh, there's the local fishermen are not sure there's room for it. So, yeah, this is something that goes on all around the state. Um, look, Back on the property side of things, development approval rules have, that, that were created because of COVID have been analysed by the business news team. What have they found? State government set up something called the State Development Assessment Unit um, last year, and 
it was really about expediting approvals for, in particular, for apartment projects and other property developments. Um, aged care homes and hotels have also been included in, in their assessment. Uh, a lot of people have put their hands up. There are 70 development applications have gone down, have, have applied through this process. The key thing is that uh, normally you go through a development assessment panel and that's where the local government authority has a role in the assessment. They have reps on the DAP. With this new unit, the decision making rests with the WA Planning Commission and there's no formal role for local councils. Katie MacDonald and uh, Jacinta Burton have done a good assessment of this. If the idea was to expedite projects and get things happening, mm. uh, there's not a lot happening. One project that's gone through this process is underway. Yep. There's about a dozen that have been approved, but of course, over that same time frame, there have been many projects that have gone through the DAP process as well. Yes. So it doesn't seem to have achieved a great deal in terms of getting you know, jobs happening. And ironically, of course, uh, we now have an overheated labour market yeah. and the government has acknowledged recently that they're going to have to defer some of their infrastructure projects yeah. to take a bit of heat out of the economy. Yeah. So it shows how quickly things can change. And on the flip side, the state government has got local government offside uh, because they no longer have a role to play. One example of this that's been topical is down at the uh, Cottesloe beachfront. Uh, Gary Dempsey has been working for ages down there to try and get approvals for his apartment project. It finally came through late last week, um, only for uh, the mayor of, uh, sorry, deputy mayor of Cottesloe, Lorraine Young, described the whole process as really depressing. Uh, <laughs> very frustrated that they were sort of pushed out of the process, essentially. On the other side, Gary Dempsey said, look, this was not easy. You know, they still had to go through three rounds of um, design revisions. Um, you know, they reduced the height of the building. They had two rounds of public advertising. They got experts and community members involved there. Um, so look, still very challenging. I've also found it intriguing looking at a number of uh, property developments, in particular apartment developments, the way in which people define maximum height. Uh, I guess we traditionally think of a building as say it's 10 storeys and you just think of it as a rectangular block mm. going up 10 storeys. But what quite a few developers are now doing is that you'll have one part of the building will go up to say, in this example, seven storeys, but then there'll be a, some sort of penthouse part that's not, not the entire sort of uh, footprint of the development. Right, okay, so it might go another five storeys above that and the yeah. average between that is 10 storeys. So in this particular case, they've talked about how high does the building look when you're standing on Marine Parade at the beachfront at Cottesloe yeah. and how much overshadowing is there from the beach. So they've got more, new, the developers have got a lot more nuanced in terms of um, where they put the extra height um, and also the bulk of a building. You know, a tall, skinny building has a lot less overshadowing than a shorter, bulkier building. Yeah, got it. Um, so look, there are many layers to it. Uh, the next thing that we're going to be seeing, though, 
is that the state government is planning to establish something called the Special Matters Development Assessment Panel. <laughs> so this will be a, a long-term thing. You know, state government already runs all the developments up at Scarborough Beach, where there's lots of high-rise planned. They've done similar things in the past at Subiaco and East Perth, and I think down at Armadale. But now they want to put in place this new body. Um, so look, it, it's, there aren't simple, easy answers in this place. Uh, sorry, in this space. Um, I think I, in many ways I commend what the state government's doing to try and expedite the process. But you've also got to ensure that you bring along the community with you because otherwise you tend to get a pushback um, and you make things really harder further down the track. Um, so look, it's a, it's a really good in-depth piece that's in the magazine. People can read um, all the detail there. And... Uh, and I'm sure the debate will continue. Now, now, fair enough, Mark. And just as a last word on that, um, you know, bringing the community along with you is, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of developers who will tell you that in general, quite often it's a very few loud voices making a lot of stink about things. Quite often they're, you know, it's stuff that once things have developed and finished, all those voices disappear and everyone goes, oh, this isn't that bad or actually isn't this great. And I think we've got you know, hundreds of examples of that just in this city alone. Um, and I'm not saying that means, you know, develop it all at, at any cost and everything like that, but it, you know, there is an awful lot of kowtowing to a very small number of people in many of these cases. Um, look, again, in the construction and building world, um, dramas around, uh, well, this week it's been Jackson Construction. So Jackson is, they're one of the more substantial construction companies in Perth. Um, part of the, the, there's this Doric Jackson group that Harry Zaitis owns and runs. One of their larger projects is um, Forest Hall down near UWA. That's the new accommodation that's being built by the riverfront there for, um, I think, mostly what, postgraduate students that get research grants and so on. Yes. Um, it's a pretty big project, 35 mil, I think was the, the value of the project. So work stopped there earlier this year, and Jackson acknowledged that they were facing cash flow issues, um, having trouble paying their tradies on that site. So a lot of people had walked off the project. Um, and yet, unusually, work appears to be continuing at some of the other projects that Jackson has underway around Perth. So as we're speaking, um, the situation is still unresolved. Um, Jackson have said that they are out there seeking um, additional financial support, and we're not quite sure how that's going to pan out. But it's just one more example where in the building industry, uh, you're never entirely sure where problems are going to hit. Yeah. We certainly hope they sort that out. It follows, of course, the collapse earlier this year of Pindan. Uh, we had an update on that during the week. Uh, we did a freedom of information request and it shed more light on the, I guess, the level of concern that was apparent within the state government based on the number of assessments that they did of the Pindan group. Yeah. Uh, Pindan, of course, was a group that went through um, several, well, a couple of changes of ownership, um, ended up under the control of a Singaporean group. And I guess what we found here is that some of the local entities like Pindan Contracting and Pindan Constructions on their own did not pass muster. 
their financial strength was not adequate, and it was only when they got guarantees from other entities in the group yep. that they were able to go ahead and win government contracts. And we heard the same thing from a lot of private developers that had engaged Pindan. They were relying on the assurances from the parent company yep. uh, that everything was going to be okay. Mm. Now, as things panned out, the local business um, did not perform well, um, went into uh, administrative receivership, I think, yep. and effectively being wound up now. So, uh, gee whiz, you've just got to be on your toes all the time and uh, be really careful in this space. Yeah, no, it's tough business and, uh, you know, and, and you know, Pindan was around for a long time, so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it can't be, you know, time in, time in the business doesn't mean everything. Uh, Mark, now finally, we had Nicola Forrest on stage. We talked about her last week in the podcast, but this week we had her on stage. So what were your takeaways from the, from the event? She got to talk about the, what, 20-year journey that she um, and her husband, Andrew Forrest, have been on in this philanthropy space. Um, you know, with Mindaroo Foundation, I think it's become pretty well known. Um, you know, it's got huge financial backing from the two of them now. But it all started uh, just over 20 years ago, and it actually came out of the ruins of Andrew Forrest's previous business. Yeah. Uh, which was, so well, that's probably not quite the right way to word it. Anaconda Nickel, that developed uh, the very ambitious Murrin Murrin Nickel project out in the northern gold fields. Uh, Murrin Murrin ran through protracted commissioning issues and didn't perform financially for a long while. And as part of that process, Andrew Forrest was forced out, but he got a payout and they committed a chunk of that money to set up what used to be the Australian Children's Trust. Yep. Nicola has spoken about the fact that, like a lot of philanthropists, initially the focus was just on grant giving. You know, write a cheque for this group or a cheque for that group. And they've evolved since then, where Mindaroo is now in the driving seat, where they establish and run major programs. Yeah. You know, tackling everything from um, pollution in the oceans, to slavery, to um, indigenous employment, uh, to development of young children. Um, it's a, quite extraordinary as to how they uh, sort of keep a grasp on it all because they've tackled some of the biggest issues the world is facing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, she also talked about, you know, how they run it, you know, they try to have business type, you know, uh, management, you know, trying to have business type goals and, you know, objectives. And, you know, I think she's also obviously deeply involved with um, Tatarang, the private firm that, um, you know, kind of used to be called sort of, Min was part of Mindaroo really, wasn't it? And they kind of separated that. So the philanthropy side is Mindaroo and Tatarang owns all these other businesses that are not directly connected to FMG. That's the RM Williams and the um, the uh, Harvey Beef and those sort of things. Uh, and we've seen news this week around uh, Huon, uh, where the, the Tatarang's taken a, you know, I think it's 18 or 17% stake, a, yeah. pretty much a blocking stake, really. That, that's the big aquaculture company in, in Tasmania. In Tassie, yeah, and they've got aquaculture, as we mentioned already in this part. They've got 
aquaculture ambitions in WA and now they're extending this to, you know, anyway. But it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. But, the, you know, they're, they're very active at the private company level as well. Uh, and, yeah. well, and of course, given how strong the iron ore market is at the moment, yeah. uh, that's obviously been sensational for Fortescue Metals Group. Yeah. Andrew Forrest owns 36% of the company. And you'll have another, what, billion dollars or thereabouts in dividends this year. Yeah. We just need to find somewhere to invest. Got to do something with that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, so that's pretty fascinating. I, I, I found um, Nicola really refreshing. And, and I, think, I think this is one thing that is, um, even though she didn't grow up in Western Australia, but it's a really West Australian story because she, yeah, look, she, she was a, you know, child of, a family I grew up on a farm and we're probably well enough off but you know the wealth that that she's now in command of is not she's she's first generation she grew up in a sense mark like you and I did you know feet on the ground blah 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 it's very different speaking to someone like that and how you know they're dealing with wealth and how they want to deal with it and she did mention that the, the, the real challenge is you know with the next generations because those, you know, that you keeping kids feet on the ground when there's that much wealth there is is a very different prospect. So, I think that's really fascinating. Um, so you're really talking to someone who's, uh, you know, a bit more down to earth than perhaps some sort of dynastic, you know, person from another part of the world where they might be just as wealthy, but it's it's generations before. Well, she did share the anecdote that um, early in her relationship with Andrew, uh, they were talking about what their, their big goals were in life. Yeah. And he said that his goal was to make $50 million and give away half of it. Yeah. And she thought, wow, $50 million. Well, that is a lot of money. And they've ended up being worth, what, 30 or $35 billion. <laughs> yeah. And she said, you know, she talked about the time when one of her children, uh, much younger, talked about what a billionaire was yeah. and she said well look it's 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 on paper you know? and just think about it that way sort of I guess remove it a little bit from your life yeah I know it's quite anyway she's very down to earth and you know if, if someone's going to have all that money you know they seem to be I think they've got the right view on how to use it so you know well done them and I think like a lot of those events you know, it's when you're in the room with the person and you hear all the little nuances and the little and, and the little anecdotes that uh, makes it really valuable. So, yeah, it was an interesting chat. Yep, it was you, me, and uh, six hundred and eighty-eight other people, Mark. So, quite a quite a quite a big crowd. Um, anyway, thanks, Mark. That's great. Uh, Fortescue Metals Group Chief Executive Elizabeth Gaines will be joining us for our next Success and Leadership Breakfast on a rescheduled event Tuesday, August thirty-first. FMG is front and centre of the future energy debate, so come down and hear about this major WA business and its plans. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.